The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. We are in a series uh, at the moment going through the Gospel of Mark. This is uh, written nearly 2,000 years ago by a follower of Jesus who is writing a story um, about the the person and work of Jesus. Uh, His goal in this particular book and his account is to try and uh, help people to come to uh, a clear understanding of the identity of Jesus and why he has uh, authority. Um, and so we've kind of been sort of sweeping through a few things today. Again, we're going to be kind of sweeping through a whole big passage, but I want to look and just make sure that we don't miss sort of the forest from the trees. I, w- I want to make sure that we, we get what he is saying. And in big chunks of the Bible, when you read through big, you can kind of miss little things. And so um, if you do have your Bibles, open up to Mark chapter 12. Uh, We're going to be reading from 13 to 44, not going through the whole thing, but we'll be touching on it. Um, But essentially what's going on in this particular passage is there is this group called the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin are a mixture of Pharisees, uh, Sadducees, and scribes. Essentially, what they have in the Jewish context is they have a lot of sway. These are the big influences. Uh, If you want to sort of contextualize it for us, it would be a mixture of these people kind of sit on... Um, maybe a political, uh, a political sort of position of authority where they might be doing stuff like in the, in the federal government where they're kind of oversighting and ruling on constitutional laws. Um, but they're also kind of like uh, Zuckerberg where they kind of have this, this social influence and they kind of c- can control social discourse because of the influence and the place they play in culture. But then they're also kind of like Shane Warne who everyone just loves them no matter what they do with their lives because they did something pretty cool in the past. Right? So there's kind of this, this big mix of these people with Im- immeasurable amounts of influence and, and authority within culture. They, can't, they cannot be touched. And Jesus comes on the scene and all of a sudden they feel threatened. Their influence, their power is being basically threatened by Jesus. And so they are sending out groups to try and get Jesus caught. Um, if you think cancel culture is a new thing, this was happening in the first century. They're trying to cancel Jesus. They want to find out, can we get him to say this thing? Because then we can tweet and post and kind of, see, we can shame him. He's not good enough. And so there's this series of sort of oppositions that come to Jesus. Uh, the first is a political one. The second is a theological one. The third is a moral one. And then Jesus, as our friend uh, Dan Patterson sort of said last week, Jesus then comes back and goes, well, I've got some things for you. If you're going to ask me some questions, I've got some questions for you. And he puts something back to them that is relational. Okay? So there's political, there's theological, there's moral, and then there is relational. So let's start off with the political. So the Sanhedrin, this group of people, send to him, verse 13 says, some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to trap him in his talk, to cancel him. Now this is interesting because the Pharisees and the Herodians hate each other. These two people don't work together. You see, the Pharisees hate Rome. Rome is the empire that they are subjugated under. Rome is the one who's demanding taxes of them. Rome is the one who's putting all of these rules and all of these constructs around them. And the Jewish people, particularly the Pharisees, hate Rome. They also don't like Herod because Herod is not a full Jew. Herod is not someone who really operates on the Jew. Really, he's a, a puppet king under Caesar and the empire of Rome. So you've got Pharisees who hate Rome, but then you've got Herodians 
which in the name Herod, they, they love Herod and they love Rome. And so these two enemies come together in order to try and get Jesus. So an enemy of my enemy becomes my friend. So they work together to conspire. And so they come to Jesus and say, mate, you're really awesome. You're a really good guy, which they're just trying to butter him up. It's just false flattery. But then they get to this question. And this is the question they're trying to get Jesus on. The question is this. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Should we pay them or should we not? Now, because of the two categories of people who are there, this is a trick question. Because if Jesus says, don't pay taxes to Caesar, the Herodians are there and will now go to Rome and say that he is conspiring against the Roman Empire, which will get him killed. If he says, you know, uh, uh, pay taxes, then the Jews will say, well, you can't really be for, for the Jewish people because you're actually affirming Rome. And so Jesus, uh, Jesus if, you, if you know goodwill hunting, uh, Jesus is wicked smart. Okay, he is wicked smart. He knows how to answer a question without answering a question, right? You know what I'm talking about. My kids do this. I don't know how they do it. It's like, man, you're wicked smart. So if Jesus says, pay your taxes, he'll be caught out by the Jews. If Jesus says, don't pay your taxes, he'll be caught out by the Herodians. So Jesus doesn't say either. What they're actually saying to Jesus is, who's your tribe, Jesus? Are you liberal or are you labor? Are you progressive or are you conservative? Are you pro-Trump or are you pro-Biden? you a vaxxer? You're an anti. This is what he's asking. This is what they're coming to do. We, like, we want you to take a tribe. Who's your people? Who's your tribe, Jesus? Who is your loyalty and your allegiance to? And what Jesus says is, neither. I don't pay my allegiance to either. And nor should you. So Jesus says, but knowing their hypocrisies is, why do you put me to test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And so they brought him one. Now, denarius is the most common coin in the Roman Empire. I actually have one for you today. So if you'd like to come and look at it, I won't pass it out because it doesn't belong to me and it's quite expensive. But it's that small. And on the denarius, I just showed my son for the first time and the, I asked him, what does he think it is? And he says, I think it's a Roman coin because he's studying Rome at the moment at school. On this denarius, it actually has Caesar Tiberius's face imprinted on it. His image is on it. And the actual, um, I'm going to pretend like I'm reading the coin and can, can read Rome. Um, the actual thing, it says this, Tiberius Caesar, son of the god Augustus, Pontifex Maximus High Priest. I just read that. <laughs> so what Jesus says is, okay, give me that. Let me look at that. What is, and then he says, what does that have on it? Whose image does it bear? It bears the image of Caesar Tiberius. That is what his image is imprinted on. It cost him money. It cost him time. Therefore, this belongs to him because it has his image imprinted on it. He doesn't say don't give taxes. He doesn't say give taxes because he's wicked smart. Because he wants to get to something different. So he says, this 
has the image of Caesar, surrender to Caesar that the things are Caesar's. This coin has value because it has the emperor's image imprinted on it. But then he goes beyond that. And this is why he's so smart. He goes, and render to gods the things that are gods, which is supposed to get you to ask the question, what has God's image imprinted onto it? This is what Caesar can imprint his image on. Therefore, okay, give to him what is his. Question, what has God imprinted his image onto? Anyone want to have, you know, everyone's like, oh, I, I know the answer, I don't want to say it. Us. The value of people consists not in the political party, left or right, progressive or conservative or vaxxer, anti-vaxxer, or what it might be. An identity, and personal security is not found in either of these tribes. It is found in the fact that the true king has imprinted himself onto all people. Jesus doesn't say revolt against Caesar and the system. He doesn't say give your allegiance to Caesar. He says there is a different system altogether called the kingdom of God. And my kingdom is not of this world. So don't find your identity in the things that you hold kind of in this earthly sense. Don't find your security in those things. Actually realize that yes, there are political systems and they're fine. Do what we should do under those. But there is someone who is above all of those. And his name is God. And find your sense of identity and security in him and him alone. He owns us. He chose us. He invested into us. Now this has implications because in this story, there are people who the Jews don't like. Namely, Romans, Herodians, and Caesar, who is saying, also bear the image of God. Now I don't know how you feel in our current cultural climate, but what we have is massive tribalism right now. And that's only going to increase as we kind of go, we believe this, so we hate you. And we believe this, so we hate you. And the Christian is to go to say, we don't hate either. We love God and you have his image. Therefore, we're not going to find our self-worth. We're not going to find our sense of security and identity in either of these things. We live in a completely different way under a completely different system, which says no matter whether you believe me and agree with me or not, you have the image of God imprinted onto you. Therefore, I will treat you as someone with dignity, value, and worth. Who is your tribe, Jesus? Neither. There is a whole different tribe. If you are in the room and you are a Christian, your tribe is God and his people. That's it. And in God's tribe are conservatives and progressives. In God's tribe are those who vote liberal and labor. In God's tribe will be people who get COVID vaccines and those who don't. Hitting a little home. Okay, let's go a little bit softer. Okay. Tiberius, get that coin out of here. That sucks. Okay, theological. Okay, so we can't cancel him because of his political views. Let's try something else. Let's go theological. So now they're going to try and find an inconsistency with his worldview. So it says the Sadducees come to him, in verse 18, who say there is no resurrection. Now this is important for us because essentially, again, we've got two tribes. You've got Pharisees who believe the whole of the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi, they believe is reliable. It is the word of God. Sadducees only believe in the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. 
Pharisees believe in the sovereignty of God. Sadducees believe in the free will of man and humanity. If you ever been in church long enough, there's two tribes right there. Okay? Again, Pharisees believe in the supernatural. They believe in life after death. They believe in angels and they believe in the resurrection. Sadducees, no supernatural. They're like your God-fearing materialists. There, there isn't such a thing as the supernatural. They're more deists than they are actually sort of the, the, those who believe in God. They, they kind of see that God exists and he's done something, but everything else is just working on the material. And so now they come to him with this question, and it's really about the resurrection. And they're trying to find a way to prove that there is no resurrection. So they come up with this hypothetical scenario to try and get Jesus tricked. So... In the Bible that they affirm, in the part of the Bible that they agree with is God's word, there is this thing called the leveret marriage. Okay? It is the idea, it's really, really gross, you're going to feel really, really uncomfortable right now, but it's important for you to understand the ancient culture. But basically, if someone marries and, and they don't have a child and the, and the husband dies, it was, the, it was the job of the husband's brother to then take her in as his own wife to protect all... Yeah, my sister-in-law over here is gagging. Okay, she's like, that is the grossest thing in the world. I now denounce Jesus Christ. Okay, like, cannot believe in a God. Okay, but the idea was in ancient culture, those who were widowed were actually the most vulnerable. So anything that they had built up in terms of land and economics or whatever would be at threat by any other man in the culture who could come and try and take advantage of the woman. So this is the idea of like, listen, marry her in, look after her and allow the fact that, that what has been built and what is theirs would stay in their family line. So he kind of goes, okay, then that guy dies, next brother, that guy dies, no children, next brother, that guy dies, no children. And you know, he kind of goes through the scenario of like there's seven of them. Now, when we get into the resurrection, which one is her husband? Right? Good question. Marriage is really important. The Bible talks about marriage uh, being this, this covenant forever. And so Jesus is like, hey, it's a really interesting question. Let me throw something back at you. You don't know how to read your Bible very well. It's basically what he says. The book says more than what you think. What you, the, the, the Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy actually says more to you than what you realize. You think you have theological understanding. You actually don't know what you're talking about. How many here would ever have asked Jesus a question? None of us would just go, Jesus. That's why when we do kids, every answer at the end of our kids' ministry, when you go back to your kid, when you go back to your parents' kids, remember what's the answer? And they all just say, Jesus. Like, good, good. <laughs> so what he says is, verse 24, Jesus said to him, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. You read the book. You read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But you're not reading the book. You don't know it. You read it as a theological textbook so you can have your theological position and tribe. You don't read it to actually find me. This is something that for me, as I, as I read this, I was like, huh, if Jesus was here today, maybe, maybe he would say this to me. Hey, Kylam, you read the Bible when you're preparing a sermon and a talk. Do you ever read the Bible to just be with me? Life group leader. You might read the Bible to prepare for your life group. Do you ever just read the book to be with God? To learn about Him and what He is like. Busy Westerner. 
do we just kind of do the word of the day one verse? Do we kind of just tick the, the Bible reading plan in our version Bible up and go, great, I read it, great, I read it, great, I read it? Or do we actually just mark out time and map out time just to be with God and open up the book and go, God, I want to be with you. These guys have the book, but he says, you don't know the book. Because even in the book, and he quotes them now, he's like 26 says, as for the dead being raised, this idea of resurrection that you don't believe in. Haven't you read in the book of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the passage about the bush and how God spoke to Moses saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He didn't say I was the God. In other words, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still alive. That's why I'm still their God. Because it's not just that I'm still living, they're still living. So even in the book in which you think you know, you're missing the whole point. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I'm still their God. I am, not I was, I am their God. But then he also wants to show them that eternity is actually better than what they think. You see, these particular people frame their assumption on the worldview that this world, essentially, the world that is to come is essentially an extension of the world that is. But this present earthly experience is entirely insufficient to tell us what eternity is like. And so we try to work it out. And God's like, listen, the thing that you love most in this life, and if you're here and you are married, it is a wonderful thing to have a spouse and to have that sort of union where you have your friend and your lover and, and it's just this sense of this is a relationship which is beautiful and we treasure it. It's like, that's just a foretaste of what is to come. You've, you've made the things of earth too great. You've made them an idol for yourselves. The resurrected life is not some prolonged earthly life, but something that is entirely new. It is greater than this life. It's not just that all the bad things are gone. It's that all the good things we enjoy here and now are just a foretaste of what it will be like then, including marriage. Now, some of you are like, my marriage isn't that great, so I kind of can't wait for eternity. I kind of like that scripture. This ain't going to be happening anymore. Great. Uh, but for a lot of us, it's like, no, this is actually wonderful. So for those of us in the room who are married, it's just a taste. And what Jesus is going, when you get there, you don't need a spouse. All the joy and all the beauty that's in that is just to show you something that is to come that is greater. And also for those of you in the, in the room who are single, and you, you feel that, that sense of missing out and loneliness in this world. This is also good news for, for you because God is saying that that experience of loneliness and longing, you won't have that in the life to come. That will be gone. Because the fulfillment of that is not to get a spouse. The fulfillment of that is to be in union with God. Next question is a moral one. It's less antagonistic comes from this scribe who's kind of watched Jesus interact with these guys like, huh, Jesus is kind of, he's handling these objections really, really well. And in fact, Jesus kind of says to him at the end, like, hey, you're, you're pretty close to the kingdom here. You're kind, of, you're kind of getting the point. And this guy comes up and he asks Jesus, okay, Jesus, of all the commands in the Bible, which is the most important? Which commandment is the most important of all? And again, Jesus doesn't answer a direct question of going, great, this one. He gives them two. <laughs> what an annoying guy Jesus is. It's like, just give us a direct answer for once, will you? 
So what Jesus does is Jesus kind of realized what's behind their question. You see, what's happening in their day is the, the Old Testament, the, Pharise- the Pharisees have kind of understand all the Bible, have kind of worked out that there are 613 rules. <laughs> you thought the 10 were hard. They've worked it out to this exact science, there are 613. Now in that, they're like, well, how the heck are we ever going to obey all of them? So what we need to do is we need to kind of categorize them as sort of the, the heavier or the weightier ones and the lesser and the lower ones. And there is, there is a rightness to that, that the Bible itself does that. The Bible doesn't say sin is sin. Okay, it does make categories. Um, there's kids in the room, so I'll be careful, but, but lying is different to abuse. God doesn't see those things in the same category. They're not the same. They are different. But these guys are doing it, not in the sense of saying, hey, listen, um, there's these different categories. They're kind of doing it in the sense of like, how can we just nail this down just to a few so that we can just get in? So if we can just obey these ones, then God will have to love us because he says obey, and we've, we've done that, and we've done the thing. And so Jesus realizes their, their motivation. They, they come from this premise, which in and of itself is wrong. The reason that you are trying to obey, the reason that you are trying to work out these rules, it's not about the rule. You've missed the spirit of the law. You've got the letter of the law. Just give me the three things I've got to do. Okay, so I've got to go to church on Sunday. Tick. Okay, I've got to do the verse of the day. Okay, tick. Okay, I've got to go and do and serve on that team. Okay, tick. All right, so we're singing a song. They've told me to raise my hands. Yeah, whatever. Okay, cool. Done the thing. And he's like, no, no, no. It's not about doing the thing. It's about loving the God behind the thing. This is about love. And so he answers, love God with heart, soul, mind and strength and love your neighbor. What Jesus is doing is he's creating an entire new foundation for building your life. Now think about this for a second. If the only reason you tell the truth is because you are afraid that someone will find out the truth about you, so you lie, right? So the only reason that you, like, the only reason that you kind of lie is because you're afraid, right? You, you have fear, you have this sense of pride, I don't want you to see the real me, so I'm going to lie. There's something under that which is wrong. These guys are saying, well, we kind of tell the truth for the same reason. We, we want to do the right thing in order to get God to love us. We want to do the right thing so those socially would see us and love us. And so essentially what he's saying is, listen, the very foundation of which you are doing these things is from a place of fear. And if you'll tell the truth in order to love, you will also lie in order to get love. So there is a problem here. Your so-called devotion to God is really devotion to self. You do the thing to get something from God and get something from people. And what, what Jesus says is, you've missed the point of doing the thing. You're going to see this with the scribes in a second who, he says, they devour widows. Meaning, they come up with Nigerian email scams. Sorry if there's any Nigerians listening to the podcast. I really love you. Yeah. Okay, you do, you do the scam to rip off the people, the vulnerable, but you do it in a way which you think is so that you can have money and, and do this thing and it's for God. It's like, no, no that's, that's not how this thing works. You have missed the entire point. And so he puts these two together. Love God, love neighbor. 
You can't separate these two. How do I know that you don't really love me? Because I look at how you treat people. And this is where we get to at the end, where Jesus goes, all right, let's talk about what this whole faith thing really is about. And so we get to verse 38. It says, and in his teaching, he's right in the heart of the temple. He says, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses. They literally are ripping off widows in a culture and a context where they're the most vulnerable. And he says, and you, you love to make a pretense to make long prayers. You throw in all your ology words and your ism words in the prayers. So everyone's like, wow, what a great Christian they are. And Jesus is like, beware of this. Because these people find their value in cultural elitism. They dress a certain way. They hang out in certain places so that people will like them. They find value in religious elitism. They have their special seats. They pray the important prayers. And they find value in Caesar's coin. Which links us all the way back. You want money. But what you don't value is that which has God's imprint on them. And I love, he challenges them. Now he uses a widow, he says, and he sat down opposite the treasury and watched people putting money into the offering. So unlike us here, okay, uh, we just do online giving. If someone wants to give money, you just do it online. No one sees it in their culture. There were like these 12 little things that you can go and put money into. And so everyone could see who gives money and who doesn't give money. Oh my gosh, how bad would that be? And this woman who has nothing walks in between all these religious people who have all the money and actually ripping off her group of people and are thinking that they're so spiritual. And she comes in, it says, many rich people put in large sums and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins. They don't even have a denarii with Tiberius Caesar's face on it. Can't even afford a day's worth of money. And he calls to his disciples and said to him, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all of these people who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contribute out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty. She gets it. She gets it. She gets that this is an overflow of a relationship to her God. This widow has every right to play the victim card. I don't have anything to give. I can't contribute. I, I can't be a follower. I can't do all of these things. She doesn't play that card. She goes, I love God. I just love him. Why? You don't even have a husband and you're poor and people could take advantage of you. It doesn't matter. I love God because God is awesome, because God is holy, because God is worthy of worship. I love God. And Jesus uses her as an example. It's not about her money. It's about her devotion to God. She has received the love of God, and now she lives in loving relationship to her God. And she loves him. And what I love about this is as these guys keep trying to tribalize and make this thing super uber complicated, Jesus just says this is really, really a simple thing. To follow Jesus is simply to receive his love 
You don't do anything. We don't obey the rules to get the love. We already have it. If you're in the room and you're a Christian, God already loves you. You don't have to try and do things to impress him or get him to accept you. If you're here in the room and you're not a Christian, but you think you have to do all the obeying, get your life all cleaned up and all sorted before you can become a Christian, God says, no, 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 that's not how it works. Realize I already love you. I put my image, imprinted it onto you to show you that. Every day you see yourself in a mirror should be a reflection. You should see God loves me. Right? That's hard for me because I've got this weird, ugly face and a long nose. Like if you come and look at this coin, Tiberius had a long nose. So I kind of feel like I'm in some good company here. Okay? I look at myself and I'm not the greatest looking thing in the world. Okay? I'm no Caleb Hamara. Okay? I'm, I'm not that. Okay? But listen, but when I look at myself, I still see the image of God. When we see those outside of our four walls of a church, we see people who are the image of God. And therefore, from a receiving of the love of God already, we respond to him by loving him back and loving those he's imprinted his image upon. Christian faith is simple. It's not complicated. It's simple. Receive God's love. Love him in return. And love those that he loves. Let's pray. God, we, we acknowledge that it's simple, it's uncomplicated. But we also acknowledge that our hearts often get in the way. Um, when we look at ourselves, much like the scribes would have, um, we know we don't love you with all of our heart, our soul, our might, our strength. And we know that we don't always love our neighbour as ourselves. But we are reminded today that you love us. Despite our inability to to do this perfectly and do this every single moment of every day, you love us. And you've proven that not just by putting your image onto us, but also by eventually sending this Jesus to the cross, this King who is here to rescue his people back into a right relationship with God where we can start to love you again with your help and we can start to love others in a way that is reflective of receiving your love. So God, this morning I pray that we'd be reminded again that in creation we see your love for us and in the death and resurrection we see your love for us. And God, for those of us who are in the room who are believers, We pray, help us to love you and to love others. And God, for those of us in the room who aren't Christians, would you help us to see and believe that you do love us and to receive that love? We pray this in your name. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church located in North Lakes. We exist to make, mature and multiply disciples in communities that depend upon, declare and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecenterchurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others, but please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.